The following was recorded July 2018 in Lou Tobacco's Upper West Side apartment for the Upper West Side Neighbors podcast. Lou Tobacco is a world-renowned jazz musician. He's known for both his inspired and full-throated experiments with the tenor saxophone and a flute that moves between robust jazz and Asian styles. And Mr. Tobacco lives on the Upper West Side. I'm Alan Winson, and this is Upper West Side Neighbors. And I want to thank you, Lou Tobacco, for sharing the next half hour with us. I'm not a student of jazz. I listen to jazz. I love jazz. And I totally got into your work at the uh, West Side Community Garden, which you played mm-hmm. about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. with Boris Kozlov, uh, who's a bass player, yeah. and Mark Taylor, who's your drummer, the Lou Tobacco Jazz Trio, mm-hmm. if I got that right at the recent concert at the uh, Westside Community Garden. And um, uh, my first question was, well, first, thank you for doing this for us. My pleasure. What is your connection with the Westside Community Garden? Well, I guess it's basically Randa. Randa uh, Kirschbaum. Yeah, she, uh, we had a mutual friend who was a drummer, a great drummer, uh, and a lawyer, <laughs> Pete LaRocca. And she, she was very friendly with Pete. And... So she asked Pete to do it, and Pete said, "No, I don't do trios because they only ha- they can only do a trio." He's, he, Pete's a drummer, and he he likes to play in bigger bigger ensemble. He says, yeah, they only have a little space there. Yeah, in but, the, in you the know, but anyway, he just that's his proclivity. So he said, "Call Lou Tobacco, and I know he has a trio, and it would be great." And Randa called me. I said, "Pete told me." I said, "Pete, are you sure she knows who I am?" You know, she said, "Oh yeah, of course she does." And started that and it was a perfect venue for us you know we've i've done it quite a few times i think i only missed one one of them how many years have you been doing it i don't i'm i'm very bad with years it's probably about 10 wow okay maybe maybe not quite but it it's been in fact i've i've done it with uh, once in a while somebody can't make it i use a different a couple times i use a different drummer but it's it's really a beautiful setting because well, a lot of old folks come out, and little kids come out and dance, and you know some of them start dancing in the middle of the the, 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 the garden space, that yeah, little it, uh, rotund. Yeah, it's really great. You know, it's it's a, it's a it's a wonderful way to spend a Sunday afternoon. Well, the Upper West Side, and uh, we certainly in, enjoyed it. We 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 recorded it, and it's now playing on the mm-hmm. on our Upper West Side uh, station. Um, you were born in Philadelphia. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, where 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 did you grow up in Philly? Oh, I almost grew up in uh, <laughs> South. Philadelphia. Have you grown up yet? No, not yet. <laughs> South Philadelphia. Yeah. See, every time I hear our man Donald say "Make America Great Again," he's referring to the America that I grew up in. I don't know about you, and it wasn't so great. It was not so good, and you know, Philadelphia was certain parts of Philadelphia were horrible. Well, South Philly wasn't particularly mm-hmm. great at that time mm-hmm. when you were growing South Philly? South Philly was pretty bad. Uh, bad in what way? Um, if, there was a, if there was a reason for people to, to dislike you, they found it. I mean, it, was a, it could be religious intolerance, racial intolerance. It was not, it was not cool. And yeah. It was the great thing about Philadelphia was that there was some great music happening, and I do I do want to ask you about that because obviously that was an early influence yeah. on you. Yeah. Uh, who were your parents? What did they do? 
I come from a, a blue collar. Well, they could be could be considered poor. They didn't. Th they never considered themselves poor. They. I did guess you? They, did they you considered themselves middle class, but they were poor. Did you feel you were poor when you were growing up? Excuse me. Did Did you sense you were poor? Well, Usually, children don't sense the poverty. Well, I didn't know if I was poor. No, I didn't know. I, all I knew was I couldn't get everything I wanted. Well, yeah. you know, like I mean, I couldn't. I was. I things I wanted I had, I had to accept the fact that I couldn't get it but we were we were cool I mean we, but my father worked in a greeting car company and that's that's it in fact yeah I never forgot it when I first started playing I was 15 years old and I think the next summer I got a gig in playing in a strip joint in wait South, a minute South. you were 15 well I was sick by the time I, I got the gig I was 16 I guess <laughs> okay that's and not I, much better well, I was playing, and I I made eighty dollars a week. Yeah, for whatever I was doing. So you were in heaven. Yeah. Well, I for playing like I had to play the blues and honky tonk, honky tonk, and uh, Harlem Nocturne, and I made more money than my father, who worked his ass off. I mean, like he really worked really hard. Wow. So that did he know that? Did he know that you were making that kind of money? Yeah. yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Did you contribute, contribute to the to family? Yeah, of course. Yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, it was just and not the idea that it was it was it was wasn't a really good time. But they we did okay. I I didn't we had no no real music in the family. Yeah. So where 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 did you listen to music early on? I mean, even before you started playing. I didn't. You know, I didn't know anything about music. Uh, music wasn't a part of my life. Uh, so there's no record player or radio. You know what we had. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother had one of those. Uh, uh, the wind, the wind up. Yeah. Oh my God! That you, you, he, uh, Lou is winding his hand. You wind it, and then you have to put a, a needle in. A really, and weirdly enough, there were a couple records that were were interesting. One of the records was uh, Sonny Stitt record. Another one was uh, uh, Woody Herman's Bijou. Wow. Can you imagine that in the midst yeah. of all this crap? And yeah. like, so that <laughs> that was it. Uh, when I got older. So, I mean, you could hear that music now, right? Because I could hear the music my father played. He always played show tunes. It was like Ella Fitzgerald and show tunes. Well, you're lucky. Yeah. I didn't even have that. Yeah. I had nothing. I, d I, I got a flute in school. So you started with a flute? Yeah, I got a flute in school, and I didn't even... I wanted to play something. I thought maybe clarinet would be cool, you know? I don't know why. Yeah. Well, I had Goodman. no idea. Mm -hmm. Just something to do. I could only get a flute. And this was in grammar school? It was in, like, junior high school. Uh -huh. And they, the school would let loan you, lend you an instrument. Would they give you lessons? Unfortunately, they gave, me, they gave you lessons, but the teacher <laughs> was totally unqualified, <laughs> and I didn't know the difference. So I, I'm listening to this idiot, and I... I mean, and you're, and you're doing what he's telling you to do. Exactly. Yeah. And because I, I never had seen anyone play the flute. And I played with the flute on my shoulder, <laughs> believe it or not. Believe it or not. I and mean, that was hard. So you held it up parallel. I held and it. And then on your shoulder. I mean, that's really bad. Like a violin. That's really bad. Yeah. And like the fingerings are wrong. And I went to public school system. They would send guys out that didn't know anything. So it, it took me years and years to overcome a bad yeah. you know beginning so i tell people get a good teacher like our, 
our, our daughter started to play the flute and I sent her to a really good teacher. I don't, you know, I, I wanted her to get, you know, proper instruction mm -hmm. so she didn't have to unlearn every, spend the rest of her life unlearning. And she plays the flute also. Yeah, she plays quite well. She was, she, she went to uh, Interlocking Academy. Wow. She, high, we were, by that time we were in Los Angeles and there was no music in school. They cut the music program. So we sent her to Arts, Arts, Interlocking Arts Academy for high school. Mm -hmm. And she used to, she had some good teachers. She didn't admit it, but she did. And so what, what, what eventually turned you around and took the flute off the shoulder? Well, <laughs> I, I got into high school. And when I was, when I was 15, I, before that, I played a little clarinet, too. I decided to get a cheap clarinet and started playing a little bit. And then I uh, got a tenor saxophone. So that opened my ears and opened my mind. There was a guy next door. We had lived in a row house, and he was a little older than me. And I kind of admired him because he, he, for some reason, he acquired a fancy car and he had a record collection, and he let me listen to some of his, some stuff that he cool had. Cool guy. And I said, "Wow!" That's, and in those days, jazz was like a jazz in the college kind of reality. It was that was the a generation of jazz in the college, basically. <coughs> so I started to listen to stuff, and interesting enough, and well, I, I did an interview in Tucson, uh, Brett Primark, he, he interviewed me for two hours, went through my whole history, and I started to remember stuff, you know. And I remember the first day I got a tenor saxophone, and I, I remember what it was, it was a Con 10M, I knew the mouthpiece I had it was a, it was a Brillhard hard rubber number four and a reed it was a, that they don't make anymore. And I knew exactly what my sound would be. And but I you were very young. I was I was fifteen. And uh, well, other 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 kids around were doing other things. They weren't yeah, playing yeah, music. Well what was it that turned you on to doing this? Well, I I, I just wanted to do it, you know. And, and I was attracted to uh, Philadelphia was. Um, Amongst white musicians, uh, Al Cohn was a big hero. So uh, I got a couple records of his. Um, some people, a little older saxophone player like Frank Tabiri, if you know, he he was uh, he became a director of a Woody Herman band a year, few years back. Anyway, he, he said, "Why don't you try to check out this album?" So anyway, I had that sound in my head, and I could, after like four hours, I could approximate it. So I had a talent for for uh, hearing something and then tonal, playing tonal, it. Tonal, tonal. Uh, I'm kind of tonally oriented, mm -hmm. like sound oriented. Like I really am into sound. I don't practice a lot of notes, but I try so hard to get a sound that I want to get. The tendency nowadays is, is deals more with uh, velocity than than sound. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You you eventually went and studied formally. Well, kind of formally. I mean, I was playing the saxophone, clarinet, and the flute basically, and I on on that strength strength of that because in, in high school, 
we did a we had a we had a music teacher actually he was a substitute and decided to do a musical musical show like a musical Whoa. theater okay you mean just like 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 a review no it was actually a uh, it was a musical play whatever you want to like call carousel it like you know, carousel you go to you know it was a high school version of uh, some mm. you know musical yeah. and i had to play it was not too many people played flute and clarinet and saxophone so i had to borrow an alto because all that stuff is in the first part and and on a bit kind of much kind of on the strength of that i got a scholarship and also i played in the orchestra i wasn't very good but i played in the orchestra this is at the uh, philadelphia conservatory of music uh, yeah right problem was with that school is it was it was no it was a classical music school and I'm there as a flute major. I'm not really that interested in the flute at that time. I was just trying to play jazz saxophone. So I go out at night and play, every, you know, and I didn't, I wasn't serious. But my last year of, my last year I actually wound up with a, a teacher that really I liked. And who was that? His name was, his name was Murray Panitz. He, he was the first flute with the Philadelphia Orchestra at the time. And he showed me fundamental real fundamental stuff that I could work on my whole life. So, And do you remember those lessons? Do you? Yeah, I remember the concepts and uh, I started working on it and at a certain point I really got interested in the flute. Uh, so I didn't take a lot of formal studies but I listened to records. Again, I, I listened to classical records mostly and I, I tried to get a certain sound, that I, a certain, certain sounds I was attracted to and I tried to uh, emulate that. Can you and describe what those sounds were? Is there a way of putting it into words? Well, it has to do, I guess you want to describe, it has to do with color. And uh, the flute can be a beautiful instrument and it can be a powerful instrument. It's not, it doesn't have to be a wimpy little instrument. Like most jazz players, not that serious about it. They just replicate what they do on the saxophone on the flute. But, but it's a different sound. So obviously clearly, it's yeah. yeah, obviously it's a different sound and like, so I, like you can, you can like on any instrument, you can express yourself quite a lot with you know one note. If you have a beautiful note, you can you can say something. So I've attracted to certain players. I, in Philadelphia, there was uh, William Kincaid, and it was Julius Baker in New York, and Jean-Pierre Rampal. And there was a flute player that used to teach at Yale. His name was Tom Nyfinger. I was attracted to, to his sound. I, 
I really liked his something about his sound. So I, I where I were you hearing these people? Were they on records? Yeah, on records. Yeah, yeah. mostly oh. on records. You know, and uh, although I was fortunate enough to attend uh, William Kincaid's uh, farewell recital in Philadelphia, which was quite amazing. So anyway, I, I got beginnings of being attracted to the flute, but at the, on the other hand, I was playing the tenor, and I, I got into, you know, normal prog progression, uh, Sonny Rollins. I really love Sonny Rollins, I still do. And uh, Coltrane, I used to emulate Coltrane. And at a certain point, I said, wow, that's pretty stupid. I started you mean emulating? Instead well, of being your own. Well, like, yeah, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to other white saxophone players trying to play like Coltrane. Yeah. And I said, what a stupid, they sound so stupid. And I probably sound just as stupid. I don't think I did, actually. I had some little recordings. Oh. They kind of captured the essence of the sound. But I said, it, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So Can you make the sound without the experience? Hmm? Can you make the sound without the cultural experience of a Coltrane? What do you mean? I don't know. I don't know. You don't know <laughs> what you mean. But bas basically, <laughs> I I was a method actor. I get on the bandstand and I'm pretending to be somebody I'm not. So that's stupid right there. So then I, I made it a point through the help of a uh, trombone player who had a record collection to to listen to the tradition. So I started checking out the tradition of jazz saxophone. Right. And... Uh, I, uh, he played a lot of the great players that I had never had much, I never listened to much or at all. He played like Lester Young. I mean, Lester Young is perfection. I mean, it's so great. And then played Ben Webster. Toshiko has a great uh, description of his playing. It's tragic beauty. Ben Webster got something, another thing. It's, it's amazing. And then, you know, Don Bias, I never heard the saxophone play like that well. And, and it got to Coleman Hawkins, and it was too difficult for me. I couldn't understand Coleman Hawkins. <laughs> and then years later, the light bulb went off. I said, well, that's, that's it. That's the source of everything. So I really became inspired by him. So I was, I was started to listen to all these people and try to absorb these feelings and es you know, the essence of the players, not necessarily transcription, but absorb the feeling. And, and um, I'm, again, this might be a stupid question, but do you absorb that feeling through the ear? Is there anything, yeah. information you get from watching? No, listening. Nothing Just listening. to watch. They're yeah. all records. And, uh, it's so it's not going to live concerts, seeing Well, most play. of those guys were not around. And, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the guys that were around were like Sonny Rollins was around, of course, and Coltrane was around. But the older, Don Bias was in Europe, Ben Webster was in Europe, uh, Coleman Hawkins was... Uh, in New York, but you didn't get to hear him much here. But anyway, you, you absorb it. It's like osmosis. You, you know, like you you listen and you you take in the elements that you really are attracted to, and you reject the elements that you're not. Yeah. And then you take all these feelings and ex and sounds and whatever, and you put it in a pot and you mix it up, and then all of a sudden you find y your voice comes out of that.
more uh, what's the right more insightful when I listen to Sonny Rollins. Say, oh, I, kn I know where that comes from. That's Bird. That's Prez. That's Hawkins. And I could I could understand how he found his voice. And I said, well, that was inspirational. So uh, that encouraged me to pursue that direction. I guess that kind of thing happens when you really get into any subject is you start seeing all the nuances and the threads and the, the, nuances the influences. Are the nuances are the things that separate us. I mean, like, uh, there's a million guys that play the saxophone like mad, but why, why are most of them saying nothing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you get practice. You're talking about young players? Yeah, basically. I mean, people... Because the school, the, the jazz education programs became very important, and they have a purpose, obviously. But uh, a lot of sometimes the teachers don't emphasize the right aspects. The important thing is to, you know, study. And but it sounds like this studying was something that you did yourself. It was like this desire, this wanting to figure it out. Well, I said, you know, I didn't. We didn't have a lot of what they call jazz aids when I grew up. You just kind of you figure it out for yourself, trial and error. Right. The trial and error system was basically my whole approach is trial and error system. You try something, oh, that doesn't work. So next time you don't do that, or you keep on developing your own language through trial and error right. and experimentation, and you develop on a parallel motion. You develop by getting knowledge and on the other hand, keeping open to uh, uh, inspirational and uh, you know approaches that are not uh, easily uh, defined. Okay, okay. Uh, if, if, I, if I can go in this other direction, and then maybe we get, we'll get back to music, because obviously that's who you are. Uh, uh, you, you are a music person, but I wanted to ask you about right after college, after the conservatory, you went into the army. And this yeah. is in 62. That was Vietnam 63, era. 63. 63. Yeah, they sent me to South Carolina. Yeah. Why they did that? They put me on a train to South Carolina when they had an army base here in sure. New Jersey or whatever it was. So anyway, that was... That was... I I don't... So you were never in combat or anything? No, I, I was... They were, they, well, it's a long story. They tried to send me to Korea. I didn't want to go and found a way out of it, but... Uh, Basically, I don't quite re the army was a horrible experience in a way, but another way it was good. You know that if you can survive that, you can survive a lot. Also, I learned that if you have something that people need, you have power, and when you can do something. And, that and what did you have that they needed? I could play. There you go. So did you play in the army? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, was, it wasn't <laughs> very good, but mm. I I could play and. Uh, and that got you through? Well, yeah, because like, I wound up, I wound up in a band training unit because commanding officer was trying to, his, his ambition in life was to put together this great show and have a great band. So we kept all the people that came through and he kept them in this band training unit. So the guys from Eastman, they, failing, they were failing uh, band training units, so he keeps them there. I, they kept on changing my orders from flute to s saxophone, and we were, and, and I remember I got that, and I got a lot of resentment from the uh, sergeants, you know, and all those people, because I was being treated 
okay. Anyway, You're I, get not this, I get this order to play at the general's dance, which is me and accordion and a whatever <laughs> it was, drummer. <laughs> and, uh, and we're playing it next morning, and, and my commanding officer was there. Next morning, he calls a meeting of everybody and calls on all these uh, NCOs and all, and he, well, I'll just tell you, I guess it's cable radio. He's, oh, yeah, you he can said, say whatever you want. He said, don't fuck with him. <laughs> and I, from that moment on, you were I, could gold. Do, I could do anything I wanted to do. I, I say, I don't want to do this. I want to go practice. Okay, you know, <laughs> whatever. So you learn, you learn that if you have something that yeah, if you have they some need, leverage, then, then you, you, leverage, that's the right word. That's the word I should, yeah. I should thought of. But the Army was, good thing about the Army, got me out of Philadelphia. I went directly, well, I got out of the Army, and I wound up in New Jersey, as near Asbury Park, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And I saved up $400, went moved to New York. And can you imagine moving to New York with $400? Not today. 1965. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Found an apartment on the Upper West Side, actually. You remember where it was? On 93rd Street between Riverside and... Uh, uh, West End. Well, that's where we live. We live 92nd. Which is 93rd. Oh, yeah. I, I looked in the Daily News, found a couple places. Wow. Went, Do you remember the neighborhood back then? What was, yeah. what was it like? Wouldn't it? Well, I remember the block. Uh, Herbie Hancock was on the block. and uh, Oh, my gosh. A lot gosh. of musicians were around there. Uh, on 93rd? Yeah. Jimmy Garrison was on West End. West End. A couple of musicians uh, half a block away. Oh, yeah. It was like, <laughs> it's kind of like it was cool. Well, I did, I did not know day. that it had that history. All day, like rent started out as ninety dollars a month. Yeah, and it was. Studio. And you were living on someplace on Ninety Third between Ninety Third Street and West Ninety Third between yeah, right on on uh, like I said between Riverside and uh, yeah, that's West my neighborhood. End. Yeah, and the uh, the Joan of Arc uh, statue is there. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't even remember that. I don't even remember Joan yeah. of Arc. Where's that? It's right at the end of uh, 93rd Street. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, and it's right there at the I end. I never got that far. Yeah, you were practicing. Yeah, I would, yeah. Pra I would <laughs> practice all day. Right. And, uh, and it was so hot. Was in the summertime, there's no air conditioning. And I, man, it was, <laughs> it was, it was an interesting time, but uh, it was, it was, in a way, it was great. And you got involved with big bands at that time? Well, an interesting phenomenon. I, I would, I, I f when I first moved to New York, I forced myself to sit in places because that's the only way you're going to get people to know who you are, whatever that means. And, and sitting in means going to a going venue? You go to a club and, you know, play. Like the first night I played in a, there was a club called the Dom on St. Mark's Place. And uh, I go there and I said, can I sit in? And the leader was Tony Scott, who was plays a clarinet and saxophone. He said, who are you, man? I said, well, I just came here, and uh, I, I met a guy when I was in the Army who used to come to New Jersey, Don Friedman, piano player. And uh, I said, Don Friedman uh, suggested I come here. He said I could play. Well, let me see what you can do. Really warm greeting. So I get up on the bandstand. I'm trying to play, and, uh, you know, and I look up in the front of the, in the, front of the stage. There's a bunch of guys sitting there like with their arms folded <laughs> and I recognized one of them was Kenny Dorham 
and I'm playing, and I could hear them talking about me while I was playing. Oh, my God. Said, oh, it sounds like he practices a lot. <laughs> so meanwhile. Is that good or bad? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, it was. Like Charlie Parker practiced 12 hours a day, so yeah. it can't be yeah. bad. But, sounds uh, like he practices a lot. <laughs> so anyway, I, I passed the audition, so I would go there and sit in. There was a lot of great players would come in. The first night I played there, Philly Joe Jones was playing drums, and Man, it was it was it was really cool, and then you get. But the point I'm alluding to was the fact that the whole racial stereotype thing. If you're white, that means you're a good reader. If you're black, you're a good jazz player. So I I was white, obviously. <laughs> I had no experience playing in bands. That was not out of my area of uh, experience or whatever you want to call it. So I. One of the guys at the jam session says, "Hey man, like, uh, I there's a I got a gig uh, to go out with uh, Les Elgard for two weeks. You want to do it?" I had no money, so I did it, and and then you learned on the on on the run. Yeah, I mean, I learned on I could read a little bit. I mean, I wasn't hopeless, but he really liked me, so he let me play with a quartet. You know, and he hated the girl singers, so instead of her singing, I would play. So. That's, I could write a book on that tour, yeah. but it was so that was like the thing. Then I got, I started to get. Uh, I sat in with Elvin Jones at a club uh, across from the Half Note, and he liked me. And Joe Farrell was his, his regular saxophone player, so Joe started sending me in on gigs for him. He sent me in to play at the with the Vanguard, uh, Mel, that Jones Mel Lewis band. And I would sub for him. And and then Eddie Daniels said, well, why don't you stuff for me? So I was doing both chairs. Sounds like you were busy. Yeah, and then Clark Terry had to start. Oh, I can. It's another story. Clark Terry. I st there was a musician's bar called Jim and Andy's. Very famous. It was a bar that only musicians and people involved in the music industry, quote unquote, would go. Is it still Clark, there? No, it's gone. Yeah. The owner died. But it was. It was a great place to hang, and it was like a form of socialism. If you didn't have any money, you got taken care of somehow. People would buy you drinks, or the owner would run up a tab, or the more successful studio musicians, they would kind of unknowingly subsidize it because the owner would, we would he would pad their tabs to cover the deadbeats. <laughs> So anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm there one Wednesday night, and Zoot Sims is there, and he's having, he's, he's drinking, he's grooving. He says, hey, man, Clark's rehearsing a band, you know, tonight. I don't feel like doing it. Why don't you do it? So I went and did it, and it was a Clark Terry's All-Stars, mm. and I was not an All-Star. <laughs> and I did it, and uh, next week I made sure I'd showed up at the same place at the same time, same thing happened. And after about four times, uh, Phil Woods was playing first alto, he said, I don't think Zoot wants to do this. You be, why don't you do the gig? So I became... You became an all-star. Yeah, I became an, an instant all-star. So that was... I played in Clark Terry's band. And then uh, Duke Pearson, uh, this Blue Note guy, he, he had a band, and... He asked me to play in that band. It was a great band. And then there were other bands popped up. Joe Henderson had a band. I played in his band. Uh, Chuck, Chuck Joe Henderson. 
along the way you you got uh, uh, with Doc uh, Severinsen. That's later. Uh, oh yeah. yeah that's, that's bullshit. Anyway, but anyway, <laughs> then I and there, was, there were a bunch of bands I'm playing. I said, Why am I playing in all these bands? This is New York. There's thousands of guys. For some reason, I'm in all these bands, and I'm not even a band, big band person. I I I got to be you know, fairly, fairly competent at it from trial and error again. And, but I was making like $4,000 a year. Wow. And then yeah. one, one day, uh, I, uh, there's a friend of mine, Arnie Lawrence, used to play with Doug Severinsen. And he, uh, he got me on this gig. It was really a, kind of a stupid gig. It was a, like a show, Doug Severinsen and his whatever, got the name of the <laughs> name of the act mm -hmm. you go around and play like weekends play like colleges county fairs eventually uh nevada and then uh, it put me in contact with other people and i started doing uh substitute stuff on the new york tonight show which was really an a really a nice experience because the guys that played in that band were real very old school professional guys that came up with the big, a lot of them came up with the big bands and stuff. And, and this is the Johnny Carson show. Yeah, and this is the one in, in New York, not in California. New York was a different thing, a different vibe. But it was, anyway, so I, can, I don't want to elaborate on it, but I, I, I played it, I did subs in that, and it was really a great experience. I learned a lot, and they... I, I YouTubed... Um, and I, I found um, Doc Severinsen playing Tango in Paris, Last Tango in Paris, and you were in the video. Well, yeah, a, well a that, that, man, that yeah. was probably in California by then. This was in New York. New York Times were much better. And then, uh, anyway, as I'm moving along, I, I'm, my income went from four thousand to nineteen thousand. That's that's a nice that's jump. I, that could get a I could get a credit card. <laughs> and so anyway, that, but. Interesting thing, ha well, a kind of weird thing happened, and you know, the Black Revolution was great for black people. <laughs> it wasn't so good for white people. So, although I was a great supporter of the Black Revolution, of course, you know, but it didn't help me a lot. <laughs> so, all my opportunities to extend, you know, in the jazz world, kind of fell flat a little bit. They weren't recording any white quote-unquote artists I don't like the word artist but they, they weren't recording anybody uh, Duke Pearson who was A&R guy for Bruno he tried to get me a date it didn't happen so I don't know a friend of mine went out went to California with Doc Severinsen and I was still doing the weekend stuff and uh, he said hey it's great out here I'm working all the time and blah 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 he was a black guy and he was he was cool, and <laughs> so Doc said, ah, "Why don't you, why don't you move to L.A. and I'll pu I'll put you on a, I'll give you part of the Tonight Show band gigs there. I'll be like on a rotation." So I decided, you know, we decided to move to Los Angeles, and that was a strange experience. Like coming from New York to Los Angeles is it's 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 like another planet. Were, were you with uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi at, yeah, at, at we, that point? Yeah, you were together yeah, at that point. This, yeah, we uh, went, uh, we went anyone who doesn't know, uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi is a uh, magnificent jazz pianist. Yeah, and she, you know, 
anyway, she, uh, we moved to move to Los Angeles. And anyway, that, uh, I realized that, uh, boy, you know, I'm like a fish out of water here. So basically, the only way to survive was to create my own environment. I, I like the idea of turning negatives to positives. It's always my philosophy. And the Tosca wasn't doing any much. And I was invited to play in a lot of bands, and they all were boring, and they were just trying to polish their chops to get you know, kind of commercial gigs. I said to Tosco, you know, you have, I know she had written some big band charts for a town hall concert she did in, in uh, way back in. I said, I, I can get some guys and we'll just play, try to play your music. And I, in Los Angeles, you could rent a, uh, a room for five, I'm telling you, this is gonna sound funny, 50 cents, half a dollar for, for uh, two hours and 45 minutes to rehearse. So anyway, um, we started rehearsing her music and she started writing music, more music, and started out as a Toshiwaki Oshi Luta back in big band. Okay. And so I was basically the contractor and a featured so prime soloist. That's basically, she wrote all the music. And the people started to pay attention and blah, blah, blah. We were able to go on tours and lost money, but Eventually, we became an entity and started winning a lot of awards, whatever that means. And so that was like, so that was the thing. And then I had my own small group projects with the, sh I was played in a group with Shelly Mann. I had a trio with uh, Billy Higgins. And so I started to make some records and all of a sudden I had, I had my own identity. In New York, I was playing in everybody else's band. I never had a, anything of my own, in a sense. So, again, the negative to positive. So that was a positive thing. But after 10 years, I said, I think it's enough. I have to move back to New York. And it's 1982. We moved into this place. Oh, you've been here in 1982 in your, in your apartment? Apartment. We On the Upper West Side, a friend near uh, the park. Yeah, a friend of mine, a friend of Tochko's and I, uh, found this building, and he said, oh, you, if I came in and looked at it, he said, you, sh you should buy this property. We didn't have any money, real money, so we, uh, I said, this is perfect. Location is perfect. I know where we have the wine cellar and everything. So we bought, we bought the brown we, brown Brownstone without any money. How about that? So you own this building? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I was just looking at the buildings around. It seems to be a set of buildings where they each have a little face on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, yeah. <laughs> like a gargoyle there. Yeah, that yeah. keeps the evil people away. Yeah, but, but it's it a magnificent set of buildings. Anybody, by uh, virtue of a personal relationship, only Toshiko's personal relationship was a banker who was an amateur saxophone player. Ah. We were able to, we were able to get uh, a down payment. Great. And it was a, for us, it was a huge amount of money. And so we bought the building. It was the greatest thing we, you know, it was the best thing we could do. Uh, we had a lot of problems, trials and tribulations, but now it's, you know, it's great. Yep. We have to pay cities, ridiculous. So they, property taxes, amazing. Like, uh, it's just beyond belief. 
$67,000 a year, I believe that, well, property tax. You got to keep working. Keep working. Fortunately, we have tenants. They, they yeah. you know, they're, and we have really great people. Anyway, so that we, we moved here, and then we, st we reformed the band. And then it, somebody said, you should they call. They said, reform the band. This is the band with your wife. Yeah. So we, did, we were doing a gig in, uh, in the village. And uh, the guy said, why don't you change it to, change it to a jazz orchestra, whatever that means. So decided to call it Totsuko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra featuring me because it, I really wanted it to be like that because people would give me more credit than I deserved. You know, I said, I, said, I don't write the music. I write, I contributed a few tunes and stuff, but she writes the music. So we did that. We so that this is this is also in the nineteen when you bought this place, nineteen eighty eighty two. Eighty two, we bought it. Right, and and then you started this jazz orchestra. Yeah, and it was a pretty big. I mean, I've seen the pictures of it. There was a lot of guys there. Sixteen people. Sixteen, so and they're all men except for the yeah, just, yeah. yeah. Well, that's an yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, how how was that? Because I imagine jazz musicians are. I don't know. They're special type of people, or they're. You mean they're uh, insecure? Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, or, we had that in Los Angeles when we first started. A yeah. lot of guys were insecure. They didn't know how to do. They didn't know the music. First of all, they weren't used to playing music that was not stuff that they had played or heard before. It wasn't a kick. Used to go a kicks band. It wasn't like playing like Count Basie charts or mm -hmm. whatever. And it was original music, and it was. Some and it was a woman that was leading yeah, them. Yeah, and it was a little different, and, and it was difficult. And they couldn't sight read it, so they got in, they got like frustrated, and it took a while to find a, a nucleus of guys that weren't intimidated or were insecure. But uh, anyway, it was we we had a girl once. We had a girl baritone player yeah. for a minute, and but anyway, we we never thought about the female male thing. It's just like whoever's the best player. Same thing with black or white. You found the best player you can get, and uh, you, that's that's how you. That's what. But what most you. jazz players, on whatever instrument, are men, aren't they? Well, these days, there's not. Well, these days there are more women popping up. There's a lot of women popping up now. It's yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's kind of evening out a bit. It's not. It's not the same as it used to be. There was like. You know, it was like a negative thing to be a woman. Then it became a positive thing to be a woman. You know, more opportunities sometimes because people are looking to integrate, quote mm -hmm. unquote. Mm -hmm. And so now it's it's, you know, there's there are a lot of really good female players. So if we had a if we started a band again, we might have some. You uh, are you thinking about starting a band? No. No. Okay. In, thirty in thirty <coughs> years. Yeah. So we had a band for thirty years and. Enough. About the same period that you had come back here and you had bought this place, you also kind of turned more to the flute. Am I right about that? No, I'm, I've, I've been working on that for a long time, and uh, you know, I, I was constantly working, working on it. I didn't turn. You know, sometimes you get recognition. You know, people kind of like to put you in a little category. So I got more recognition playing the flute because I was better than most of them, and. And you know, and there's a million tenor players, but I would get pissed off because they don't give you credit as a credit as a saxophone player. Same thing with Frank West had the same problem. Y you know, he was known as a flute player, but he was a great uh, tenor player, and 
didn't got the short end of the stick because nobody believes that you can do more than one thing. Yeah, well, yeah. It's so it's like I don't. I consider myself to have played two primary instruments. I don't believe in the doubler mentality. I and I work hard. I work hard on both of them. I, right now, I'm working hard on the flute. Well, of all the things you played at the uh, garden at the West Side Community Garden. I really loved the flute piece. I mean, the other pieces were wonderful. The yeah, I, I know that. Right, Randa, I should have probably played more, but it, I don't know why I didn't. Can we talk about one of your one of your albums? Uh, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Tanuki's Night Out. Tanuki's Night Out. Tanuki's Night Out. Yeah, right. You, you which which is both the you're playing the tenor sax and you're playing the flute with your jazz uh, trio. True. I have a bu I have a few albums with the trio. Right, but yeah. I mean, I just recently listened to that, and I oh. just wanted to ask you about. Um, the, the different sounds on that album yeah. um, between um, the, the, the tenor sax, uh -huh. which has that, that jazz sound that I, I recognize, yeah. and then there's the kind of Asian flute sound, yeah. but then the flute also moves over into a Spanish sound with yeah. the castanets. Yeah. Um, you, you seem to be like different people well, when you pick up the instrument. Well, basically... Um it's, it's another long story I won't get into, but I developed an affinity towards um, kind of a Japanese aesthetic when Tosco Wright wrote a piece a long time ago called Kogan. It was about the guy that was in the Philippines, uh, Onoda, Lieutenant Onoda. He was like, he, he didn't know the war was over, so he spent 30 years in the Philippines as a reconnaissance guy waiting for the Japanese to come. Was of course they lost the war and he didn't know that so he was they finally discovered and the Tosco was moved by his experience she wrote a piece for him called Kogan which means like forlorn force or one man army and different definitions but I had a flute solo and I didn't want to play like a little beboppy flute solo I said I wanted to tell this try to tell the story so I tried to still to tell the story through the flute and then I started doing it, and I started to get into it, and I started listening to some shakuhachi music and stuff. And when we went to Japan, we played it, and I said, oh, maybe the people will really think I'm stupid for doing this, but they really, they really related to what I did. They said, oh, you have a Japanese soul, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that... that what did that I mean to you when they said you have a Japanese soul? What, well, what, what, did, what do you think that meant? Because I have, I, I have a feeling I, I can... Uh, empathize with the feeling of uh, Japanese experience, maybe whatever sound, that feeling sound is. Sound and uh, yeah, it's like and they and they space. felt it had some kind of uh, authenticity to it. Yeah, it, although it's not, it's not you know studied. <laughs> one aspect and then through the years I used to play like in, you know uh, 
impressionistic type improvisations like French style. And, and w in Madrid, I wrote this tune for, for called Dancing Macha. And I thought it'd be funny to do one. And I recorded on there and it's like, so I try to play a little Spanish thing, although it's not my thing, but it's something, you know, and, I, and I, I try to, actually I'm a narrative player. I try to tell a story.
the other tune I did on that album called. Uh, no, no. Which album are we talking about? Tanuki Style. Tanuki's out, okay, right. Uh, Desert Lady. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, tell, I'm trying. It's, I'm, I'm doing a vi almost a visual. I'm trying to create a visual. Toru Takamitsu wrote wrote the music, and he's, I, I love his music. Right. Any, anyway, so the, I, I'm a I'm a storyteller. I don't. I try to do that on the saxophone too. I don't like to just play. I like to. Sometimes I, I don't do it the way I should, but I like to have a reason for playing a song. And, if and that I reason may change from. Well, it might be. Uh, well, it might be. Might be to tell a joke. Or might whatever it might be. I you know I, I just don't just want to play a, a tune. I want to want it to say something, and. I'm I'm grappling with that now. I'm trying to f starting to feel that I'm losing a little of that. I have to start uh, kind of, you know, being more aware of what I'm. My goal is one of the things that you said at the concert at the Garden a couple of weeks ago was you made you used the phrase the former United States. Do you remember saying that? Oh yeah, yeah. I I <laughs> that was like I I'm, this happened in Europe. We we did a European tour the trio and. I'm making an announcement, and I said, "This is a uh, in Japan. We tr we do this. Every, we go to Japan every year, and we're known as the Kokusai Torio, which is an international trio. So I'm announcing this. Yeah, Mark Taylor's from the UK. Boris Kozlov. He likes to be referred to as from the former Soviet Union. <laughs> and I say, I'm Lou Tabakin. I'm from the former United States. Yeah. And the people get it right away." I just did that by accident. I mean, I just can't. It's like when you're playing and or something comes to you that you didn't prepare. And this, so I, I said, hey, that's a pretty good line. You know, it's not so bad. And the people really. Well, it's a good line because it's true. Yeah. And people, you know, in Europe, they're cracking up, you know. And even the UK, I said, the former UK, too. You can, I, I even ex extend, expanded it because th that thing is falling apart, too. Well, UK has been the former UK for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Since they lost the empire. Yeah. So um, we, we cover yeah. a lot of territory. We did cover a lot of territory, and I want to thank Lou Tabakin for inviting us into your home. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you for the last hour or so. Well, thanks for thanks for doing this. I think it's you know we start to get some. You know, there was a somebody had a little festival at the Symphony Space a few years back. Uh -huh. It was like a yearly thing. I think it lasted three years. It was sponsored by Zabar's, and it was great. Like a lot of the people from the neighborhood, we we play, and I walked down the street, and some little lady said, "Oh, you you played at the you know right. symphony." Yeah, it was. I don't know why they That's stopped that doing. She, she knows you from playing at the symphony space. Yeah, there's like there's so many players here. I don't know why they stopped doing it. It would be a perfect. The thing Upper to West have. Side is filled with talented musicians. Of course. I, I mean, one of the things I I could just talk to musicians. Yeah, you if know, you the go whole up, time. If you go up, like I have a friend. Uh, one of, I'm sorry, one of my best friends, who just who was the first flute player at the Met. He he just got the gig at playing uh, principal flute in Chicago, and I used to go hang out with him on 101st Street, Riverside. A bunch of classical musicians up there, a little farther uptown, you know, 101st, and a lot of classical players and. So we have tons of tons of players here. I don't know why they don't establish 
uh, an upper, upper, upper West Side Jazz Festival. Yeah. Two nights, man. Or, or Upper West Side Classic Festival. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Symphony Space would be a perfect place for it. Yeah, they did. We did a. F there was a photo taken about ten years ago, I think, in front of Symphony Space of, of, uh, you know, people involved in the quote-unquote arts and the Upper West Side. He took a big photo, supposed to be like you know the one at uh, Harlem, the uh, Great Day in Harlem kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's her name was involved in it? The uh, Cynthia Nixon was involved in it. Yes, the next governor. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, no. She's not going to make it. You think Who she's going to be the governor? Who knows, man? You never know. Well, yeah, you never know. Look where we are now yeah. in the form of the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Again, I, I want to thank you very much, okay. uh, Lou Tabakin, for being on Upper West Side Neighbors. Uh, okay. I'm Alan Winston, and uh, th thanks again. Now, we're going to take, take a selfie, and I'll, I'll put it on the website if that's okay. Okay. Right. Thanks a lot. I have a, I have a person that can take a picture. Great. Let's do that. I have a hard job. I forget to turn my microphone on. I'm not used to microphones. Excuse me. Thank <laughs> you.